what would you do if you discovered a plane crash? Would your answer be different if the plane you found contained 6,000 pounds of marijuana? In 1977, some people had to make that decision. My name is Jeff Fargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Welcome to Episode 2 of the High Adventure Podcast. If you're new to us, you might want to go back and listen to Episode 1 and sort of get a feel for the time and the era that we're talking about. I also want to thank all of you that have sent me emails and messages about the podcast, and I appreciate the kind words and the support. I'd like to encourage you to go to your favorite podcast platform and leave a review. Five stars really helps. It doesn't matter what you say, but the five stars really pushes the podcast algorithms and moves us up. And as we're a new podcast trying to attract listeners, everything you can do to help us is much appreciated. In this episode, we're going to discuss the ill-fated flight of John Gliske, Jeff Nelson, and the Yosemite pot plane. I just love the term ill-fated. It sounds so old-timey and conspiratorial. But in this case, a conspiracy is not completely out of the question. You see, John Gliske thought someone was trying to kill him. That's not an unreasonable thought when you're deep into the drug smuggling world. But in this case, was it paranoia? Had he done something that he knew might anger others who were involved in his operation? We might never know. But some strange things did happen. On the first flight of the day, the aircraft began losing oil pressure. Gliske inspected his plane on one of his stops and found a leaking oil line. He got a new line, but for some reason he didn't replace the damaged one before leaving on what would become his last flight. Remember, he flown two trips on the day of the crash. He'd flown one trip in the morning and was on his second trip when the plane crashed into Lower Merced Pass Lake. Before we get into this part of the story, I'm going to talk a little bit about flight and planes and a few of the other crashes that had happened in Yosemite. The first plane to land in Yosemite on purpose was May 27, 1919. It was a Curtis biplane piloted by Lieutenant J.S. Kroll. Coming in from the east with Half Dome at his back, Lieutenant Kroll guided the 150-horsepower plane through the tricky winds to a somewhat bumpy landing in Leidig Meadow, which, if you've been to Yosemite, is the meadow behind what's now the Yosemite Lodge and across the road from what's now Camp 4. Leidig Meadow became Yosemite's sort of official airstrip for many years. The park brass were so excited about flying into Yosemite in 1919 that Park Superintendent Washington Lewis wrote about the future of flight in the park in his annual report. I quote, There seems to be no reason why, after complete aviation maps have been prepared of the surrounding mountain country that show all the possible landing places, and there are many of the countless mountain meadows suitable for this. This method of transportation in the valley will now become popular, and I believe that before very long, definite preparations must be made to provide proper landing places not only in Yosemite Valley, but also in other places of interest in the park, such as Tuolumne Meadows and Lake Tenaya. So that's what Washington Lewis said in 1919 after seeing Lieutenant Kroll land this biplane in Leidig Meadow. Again, this was 1919, and five years after John Muir had died. Can you imagine what John Muir would have said if he heard they were going to build landing strips in Yosemite? Well, probably with the same thing he would have said if he heard they were going to put golf courses and pizza parlors and sports bars in, but we have all those things now, so I guess things move forward. The first plane crash in the park was in 1921. The next was in 1924, but there were no injuries in either one of those crashes. 
both had stumbles on takeoff and were essentially fender benders. So air traffic increased in and around Yosemite. But on July 25th, 1926, things turned tragic. Dr. Sterling Burnell was an orthopedic and plastic surgeon from San Francisco and was known as one of the flying surgeons. He'd owned and piloted his own plane and flew medical mercy missions up and down the coast of California helping folks that didn't have access to medical attention. But on this particular day, he had a celebrity passenger, and this was no medical mission. Doc Burnell was flying Leroy Jeffers over the Sierras and into Yosemite. Leroy Jeffers was 48 years old and kind of an Indiana Jones type of guy. He was Harvard-educated and a senior librarian at the New York Public Library. He was an author. He was a climber. He was an explorer. He was a fellow with the Royal Geographical Society as well as a member of the California Academy of Sciences and the librarian for the American Alpine Club and a whole lot of other things. Just a huge resume. But he wasn't just a guy who talked the talk. Leroy walked it. In 1920, he did the first ascent of Mount Moran in what's now Grand Teton National Park. So this guy was a big deal, maybe the first famous climber in the U.S. So Burnell is cruising him around the high Sierras for the day, and the plan was to land in the meadow in front of the Wawona Hotel. That meadow is now a golf course, by the way. There was something like 200 people waiting out in front of the hotel to see this plane land and try to get a look at this celebrity explorer. Dr. Burnell circled twice and then sliced his way through these two small ridges, but for some reason, about 100 feet off the ground, he banked the plane hard for the landing. But the plane lost lift and nosedived into the ground. The horrified crowd saw and heard the deafening sound of the plane hitting the ground. Leroy Jeffers died instantly, and Dr. Burnell sustained serious injuries. In 1927, an entrepreneur named J.L. Mayberry announced regular air service between Merced, Wawona, and Yosemite Valley, and even announced the building of a new landing field. Though air travel in and around Yosemite continued, Mayberry's plan never quite materialized. The skies around Yosemite were relatively safe for the next 10 years. That all changed on March 1, 1938, when the first and only commercial airliner crashed in Yosemite. The TWA Sky Queen took off from San Francisco at 6.30 p.m. on its way to Winslow, Arizona. But first heading directly south, the flight was to make a stop in Burbank, which is a Southern California city just outside of Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. If they're going to Burbank, how in the world did it end up in Yosemite, 240 miles southeast of San Francisco? Well, here's how it happened. Flying down what is now Highway 99 over Modesto and then Fresno, the weather started to deteriorate. South of Bakersfield, the pilot radioed the airport in Burbank that ice was forming on his wings and he was turning back. The conditions, he reported, were terrible. It was dark, he was flying through clouds, and he was really uncertain about where he even was. This was an era before radar, so there's not much that could be done to help. He was advised to turn back and try to land in Bakersfield, or really any place he can find. But this last transmission to the TWA flight was unanswered. The plane disappeared. A well-meaning but misinformed witness reported seeing lights from a plane flying low about 30 miles east of Fresno, which would have put it in the foothills of the Sierras. The search began the next morning, but they were looking in the wrong place. At one point, the search included 50 planes and 400 ground searchers. TWA offered a $1,000 reward. That's the equivalent of about $17,000 today. But after three months, the money was still unclaimed. There was no sign of this plane. The theories about what might have happened began to change. How could a plane just disappear out of the sky? 
Could it have ended up in the Sierras? Did it crash in a lake? Is it submerged? Enter a 23-year-old California Conservation Corps worker named H.O. Collier. Collier was stationed at the Wawona camp at the time of the accident. On his days off, he combed Yosemite's high country looking for the wreckage. He said that he had a hunch the plane had crashed nearby. On June 12, 1938, 104 days after the plane went missing, Collier located the wreckage about 12 miles from Wawona. Remember, Wawona is where Leroy Jeffers' plane crashed. The wreck of the TWA Sky Queen was found about 200 feet below the summit of a 9,700-foot peak called Buena Vista Peak. Oddly, this is only about five miles or so from Lower Merced Pass Lake where the pot plane crashed. The controversy developed when it was rumored that Collier discovered the plane much sooner than he'd reported. But at the time of his alleged initial discovery, he was still a member of the California Conservation Corps and was a government employee, which would have made him ineligible for the reward. But at the time he reported the crash, he was no longer a CCC employee and was eligible for the reward. There's no way we'll ever know the truth about when Collier really discovered the crash. Remember, the reward was $1,000, and the average income in 1938 was $1,700. And for a Conservation Corps worker, he was probably earning less than that. And this was the middle of the Depression. So the TWA Sky Queen was serviced from San Francisco to Winston, Arizona via Burbank, made its final landing on Buena Vista Peak in Yosemite. Ironically, there is a street called Buena Vista Street, which is very near the Burbank Airport in Southern California. Coincidence? Maybe. On July 29, 1962, 27-year-old Ben Amerigen convinced his friend, 27-year-old pilot Alvin Taylor, to fly he and his two friends from their home in Sacramento down to Fresno to attend a Billy Graham revival. After the revival, the plane took off just fine. It should have been a straight shot upstate from Fresno up to Sacramento. For some unknown reason, the plane headed into the Sierras and with too much weight and not enough lift to get the small piper up and over the passes of northern Yosemite, the plane crashed about 9,000 feet. Strangely, the plane wasn't discovered until 32 years later. In 1994, a hiker discovered the mangled wreckage and the bleached bones of the victims. I could probably do an entire podcast on the plane crashes inside and close to the Yosemite boundaries. Just between October 24th and November 2nd of 1941, the U.S. Army Air Corps had 13 plane crashes that resulted in 13 dead and 3 missing, all in and around Yosemite. There are dozens more plane crashes that I could discuss, but this show is about the pot plane crash of 1977. So after a brief break, we'll be back to talk about John Gliske, his plane, and his choices. I assume you're listening to this podcast because you enjoy a good adventure story. Along with the High Adventure podcast, Accidental Productions also produces the Accidental podcast that features interviews with rock climbers and adventurers from around the world. We've also produced a number of films as well as the web series El Cap Bridge featuring discussions with the famous and not-so-famous climbers that hang out in what's called the center of the climbing universe. Our feature film, Assault in El Capitan, takes you up on the second ascent of Wings of Steel with legendary big wall climber Ammon McNeely as he tries to solve the mystery of the most controversial climb in Yosemite history. Assault on El Capitan is available on streaming services everywhere and is free on Amazon Prime. We'll soon be opening our online store where you'll find several of our other films, podcasts, and web series, as well as the typical podcast merch. Stay tuned for the date of our grand opening. Now back to the show.
Welcome back. We talked earlier about John Glisky's fear that someone was trying to kill him. A few days before the crash, Glisky told his wife that he had a bad feeling about this upcoming job. Sometime after the crash, but before the plane was found, Glisky's wife had a dream about her husband dying. In her dream, she saw him hanging upside down in the cockpit of his crashed plane. When Glisky was found and finally pulled from the wreckage almost five months later, he was hanging from his seatbelt inside the submerged plane. The night before John Glisky and Jeff Nelson took off from Las Vegas, Glisky had met an old army buddy from Vietnam. They talked about the close calls they had flying helicopters under fire and the jeep they stole and airlifted to their own hangar in Quang Tree. They drank scotch and told stories, but Glisky's old army buddy knew something was wrong. John Glisky was a friendly and easygoing guy, but on this night he seemed tense and on edge. The morning of December 9th, Glisky woke up in his hotel room in Las Vegas feeling very uneasy about the day's work. And as we said, the plane lost oil pressure on its first run of the day. Glisky inspected the plane and found the leaking oil line on the Howard 500. The oil line did not look like it was damaged from wear and tear. This looked deliberate. It was going to be a long day of flying. Starting in Las Vegas, they were to fly to a beach landing strip in San Quentin, Mexico, which is about 250 miles south of Tijuana. While on the beach, somewhere around three tons of Mexican red hair marijuana was loaded onto the Howard 500 aircraft. This Mexican red hair was a high-grade strain of Cincinnati that was grown by an American syndicate known as Moda Magic. When you give your organization a name, you know you're doing fairly good business, and a business that's doing well enough to buy its own plane is kind of a big deal. We'll get into the sketchy ownership of this plane in a later episode, but finding the actual owner of this Howard 500 was a bit of a chore. The Howard 500 wasn't built by Howard Hughes, as often thought. The Howard 500 was the dream of D. Howard and his mechanic Ed Swearingen. D. loved the Art Deco period and thought he could bring some of that styling to his aircraft. Only 22 Howard 500s were built, and as far as I could find, only two remain. They never reached their full marketing potential because while waiting four years to receive certification as its own independent type of aircraft design, the market changed, new turboprops and jets came on the market and essentially made the Howard obsolete before it ever took off, so to speak. The Howard was understandably mistaken for the Lockheed Lodestar. D. Howard bought decommissioned Lodestars and Venturas. Most were ex-South African Air Force planes. D built these planes using the Lockheed Lodestar and Ventura airframes, but that's where the similarities ended. The original plan was to develop a new type of private pressurized executive aircraft that was more luxurious, faster, and had a longer range than anything else in his class. The typical 12-passenger configuration had folding tables, couches, a galley, and a lavatory. The bomb bays of the original aircraft were utilized as two massive baggage areas. It contained additional fuel tanks, wider and stronger wings, and the same engines used in a DC-6. The Howard carried 1,500 gallons of fuel and could cruise 350 miles an hour and had a range of 2,600 miles. It could fly at an altitude of 33,000 feet or a couple of thousand feet if you're hauling weed through California. Seems like this plane was actually built for smugglers. Which brings us to John Glisky and Jeff Nelson. John has already found a leaking oil line in this Howard. This plane is known to be delicate and require a lot of maintenance. He's got a feeling someone's trying to kill him. He's more than likely pretty hungover from trading stories and scotch with his army buddy all night at the hotel bar. Now he has to fly three tons of marijuana up the coast, across the Sierras, 
and land in the desert outside the biggest little city in the world, Reno, Nevada, and then do it again later that day. These might be the excuses for a few bad decisions. The weed was tightly packed in 40-pound burlap bales. Some of the bales were marked freehold, which is Spanish for bean. After the crash, most of the bales remained intact, which made pulling huge amounts of weed from the lake relatively simple. By all accounts, aside from the leaking oil line, the first trip went fine. Even though John didn't replace the oil line, we have to remember he was a very experienced pilot. He'd flown helicopters in combat in Vietnam. So I'm sure a small loss of oil pressure wasn't too much to worry about. John did get a new oil line between flights, but for some reason didn't replace the leaking one. But with John's experience and knowledge of the route, maybe he thought it was not affecting the performance of the plane. But what about the thought that someone was trying to kill him? Is it possible that they succeeded? On the second trip, it was dark. Kliske would have followed the same route up the coast, being sure his running lights were turned off and he was flying below the radar. He turned east toward the Sierras. He'd have climbed from the low altitude under the radar to 14,000 feet to clear the peaks of the central Sierras. While crossing the mountains at about 9,000 foot level, something went wrong. The engine detaches from the wing. The tilting plane dips down and catches a tree. It rips the wing off. A trail of wreckage a quarter mile long ends with the Howard 500's nose down into a frozen lake at the 8,800-foot level of the Sierras. The last minutes or seconds of that flight must have been horrifying. Serious vibration, then a dramatic list to one side, and the loss of a wing. What were Gliske and Nelson saying? Were they thinking they could land on the lake? Did they know it was all over but the crash? By all accounts, John Gliske and Jeff Nelson died on impact. After the echoes of the crash waffled through the trees, there was only silence. Silence for a long time. John Gliske's wife was in their home in Seattle and had been waiting for her husband to call and check in. He always called after his final run, not only a simple check-in, but to talk with his six-year-old daughter. Pam Gliske waited and waited and waited. And after the plane had been missing for 10 days, Pam Gliske finally called authorities. But which authorities did she call? We'll talk about the search, locating the crash, and the circus that developed. And that day in April 77, known as Big Wednesday, when armed rangers dropped in by a helicopter and took control of the scene, sending dozens of scavengers out into the forest. That's all next time on the High Adventure Podcast. Thanks for listening. High Adventure Podcast is produced by Accidental Productions. Follow High Adventure on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. We'll see you at the crash site.